0: Welcome back. We are continuing our journey through Rabbi Sachs' book, Morality. We are up to chapter four. Uh, The topic for today is The Fragile Family, and then we'll end with Rabbi Sachs' thoughts on the Parsha. This week's Parsha is Parsha Shemot, and the title of his essay is God Loves Those Who Argue. So let's go to The Fragile Family from Rabbi Sachs' book, Morality. So Rabbi Sachs is going to focus in this chapter on marriage. And he talks about how all civilizations have had ways of consecrating marriage in the family. And if you look at immigrant communities, they've had significant strain in adjusting to a new country and culture. And Jewish families have been really a source of resiliency, has been the, the strength of the family. And it's allowed them to survive enforced exiles and expulsions. And family, as we all know, is a supreme value in Judaism. It's how we celebrate our festivals and Sabbath, plays a starring role at the Seder table when we ask our youngest children questions. And strong families create adoptive communities. Now marriage is fundamental to the moral enterprise. It's the supreme example of the transformation of two I's into a collective we. It's the formalization of love, not as a passing passion, but as a moral bond. And Rabbi Sachs talks about the difference between contracts and covenants. In a contract, two or more individuals, each pursuing their own interest, come together to make an exchange for mutual benefit. In a covenant, two or more individuals, each respecting the dignity and integrity of the other, come together in a bond of love and trust to share interests, to share their lives, pledging faithfulness to each other, and to do together what neither can do alone. A contract is a transaction. A covenant is a relationship. A contract's about interests. A covenant's about identity. It's about you and me coming together to form an us. A contract benefits and a covenant transforms. And this is what differentiates marriage and the family from economics and politics and the market, which is about the logic of competition. A marriage may have the external form of a contract, and in fact we sign a marriage contract, a ketubah, but its inner logic is that of covenant. Now if we look at the Hebrew word amunah, often translated as faith, it really means faithfulness, fidelity, loyalty, steadfastness, not walking away even when the going gets rough, trusting the other, honoring the other's trust in us. Now faith is like marriage, and if we look at the words of Hosea, when he said in the name of God, quote, "I will betroth you to my forever. I'm sorry, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord." This is Hosea. Chapter two, verse 21 and 22. Now marriage is fundamental. It's how we recognize something beyond the eye of self-interest into the we, the common good. Alexis de Tocqueville, he understood this well. And he felt that no country in the world had a better respect for marriage than in America. And he contrasted this to Europe. He saw marriage as a foundation of a free society, where domestic peace equaled social order, and a lack of it led to social unrest. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, in the 1960s, pointed out the potential social risks that could be associated with the breakdown of the family, and in certain ethnic and minority groups, this was becoming quite profound as the traditional family was, being, was becoming less commonly, uh, commonly seen in, in society. From the 1960s onward, fewer people were getting married and those who were marrying was marrying later. In 1968, 56% of Americans between the age of 18 and 31 were married. By 2012, it was down to 23%. Up to 50%, were ending in divorce, and almost one out of two children were being born outside marriage. And there's a difference between marriage and cohabitation. There's something about the formality of marriage which leads to a sustaining commitment. Even in marriage that ends in divorce, the average length of marriage was 12 years, while marriages in general last on average 30 years. But the average length of cohabitation is less than five. So the formal act of commitment, that's what constitutes marriage as being a unique identifier of strength and durability of the relationship. There are two well-known sociologists which both recognized that the American dream was being broken for at least a third of the population. And by the American dream, we mean that everyone given effort and enterprise could succeed in life. One was Charles Murray of the American Enterprise Institute, a libertarian right background and Robert Putnam of Harvard from the political left. And what they both found was that beginning in the 1960s, there's been a divergence in our society. People generally interacted more back before the social tumult of the 60s. They generally belonged to the same world and they diverged the well-off and well-educated prospered, while the less successful and poorly educated became progressively more deprived. And there was a decline in social mobility, and they found the difference had to do with marriage patterns. That's where it began. All groups were affected by a sexual revolution in the 60s. And while the more successful group recovered quickly from the norms of the sexual revolution, which espoused free love and kind of backtracked from that over time. The poor group continued going down that path with a dramatic rise in cohabitation without marriage, non-marriage, divorce, and single parenthood. And there's overwhelming social scientific evidence about the harm for children in that environment. Single parenthood is not the ideal way to raise a child and both that and divorce can be harmful. Um, And if you look at measures of childhood aggression, delinquency, hyperactivity, criminality, early mortality, emotional health, educational achievement, career success, they can all be taken into account from the uh, differences in nuclear family in in, in their upbringing. So while Putnam and Murray found that the top third of society – had dabbled with the new freedoms of the 60s and then more or less returned to the old conventions the bottom third of society was less able to swim against the current and this led to an enormous burden on single mothers rise in child poverty whole communities without adult role models in certain communities there'd been a resurgent, there'd been a uh, increase in a in petty crime a uh, general drug culture and people found themselves in prison educational underachievement, high unemployment, and more violence. Rabbi Sachs goes on to say that a generation imbibed with the idea of sex without responsibility and fatherhood without commitment leaves victims. These victims are children of dysfunctional families who never really have a chance to pursue their dreams and instead are marred in a culture of poverty, violence, prison, and hopelessness. Now, if we look at ourselves from a biological perspective, what's unique about Homo sapiens? Well, one, we stand upright, at least compared to other primates. And what that led to is a constriction of the female pelvis. And due to our enhanced cognitive abilities, we have bigger brains, which means larger heads. So those two things together human babies have to be born more prematurely compared to other species. And thus they need parental protection longer because you can't allow the head to fully develop otherwise it wouldn't get out of the female pelvis during birthing. So this made parental, the need for parental protection more necessary and parenting more demanding than any other species and really requiring the work of two people. So you see the rare phenomenon among mammals of pair bonding. What emerges is the human person is a union of the biological mother and father to care for their child. And then let's add the cultural component on top of that. History started with human society being initially hunter gatherers where pair bonding was the norm. And then with the advent of agriculture, That led to economic surplus, urbanization, and civilization, which allowed sharp inequalities between rich and poor. Thus, a hierarchical society. Now, the most obvious expression of power among alpha males in a hierarchical society is to dominate access to fertile females. When you're living in a hunter-gatherer, small tribe element, where everyone has the same, there's more collaboration and cooperation, and everyone can stick with their own... A mate. When you have hierarchical divisions and people can exert power on, their, on each other, they're going to most likely demonstrate that power with access to mates. If you think about this biologically, alpha males maximize the spread of their genes the next generation. So there would be a natural incentive towards polygamy. And that's what you see in the animal kingdom. 95% of mammal species and 75% of human cultures are polygamy environments. And polygamy is a very powerful expression of inequality because what happens is many males never get the chance to have a wife or child because of the concentration of mates towards the powerful and women only get a part share in their husband and they're unlikely to have much choice in, in, in their mate This leads to sexual envy, which is one of the prime drivers of violence. And this is what makes the first chapter of Genesis revolutionary. That every human being, regardless of class, color, culture, or creed, is in the image and likeness of God. In the ancient world, it was far different. Rulers, kings, pharaohs, they were held to be in the image of God. And what Genesis is saying, they were all royalty we all have equal dignity in the kingdom of faith under the sovereignty of God. We all have equal rights to form a marriage and have children. And if you go through the course of the Hebrew Bible, monogamy is not the norm. Although it's interesting, if you look in the Garden of Eden, which we look at as close as humanity can get to perfection, there's Adam and Eve, there's husband and wife. But then as we go through the book of Genesis, we go into a world of polygamy. Okay, all the famous stories in, uh, in are tensions between spouses, husbands, and wives, uh, their children. So we see in Abraham's situation, the, the the tensions between Sarah and Hagar. We see with Leah and Rachel um, and their children, David and Bathsheba, Solomon and his many wives. These are all critiques at at polygamous culture and point the way to monogamy. What's amazing about monogamy is that normally values of society are imposed by the ruling class, but monogamy actually goes against the ruling class. See in monogamy, the rich and powerful lose and the poor and powerless gain because the rich and powerful lose access to the ability to have many wives. And there's more equal distribution of those resources across the society. If we look at great civilizations, rep- reciprocity, where the golden rule is commonly found. Okay, do unto others as you'd want done unto you, and that's not so unique. That's a common value. But what's remarkable about the Torah? is that love, not just reciprocity, is a driving principle of the moral life. Let's look in the Shema, where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Other places in the Torah, love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, love is mentioned 36 times throughout the five books of Moses. Love the stranger because you know what it feels like to be a stranger. Just as God created the natural world in love and forgiveness, we are charged with creating the social world in love and forgiveness. And believing the Jewish people have a special mission, it's our family-oriented focus, which has saved us from tragedy. When Jews are scattered around the world after the second temple was destroyed, they survived because they never lost faith in their sense of family, their sense of community and faith itself. And these are the values that are renewed every week on Shabbos, the day of rest, when we give our marriage and families what they most need and most starve for in modern society, which is time itself. So if you look at the traditional family, Rabbi Sachs comments, it's a work of high religious art because it brings together sexual drive, physical desire, friendship, companionship, emotional kinship and love, begetting children and protecting them, their early education and giving them a sense of identity and history. Love is what gives our world a human face. And everything that marriage once brought together to help create this environment is now split apart with the the de-emphasis on marriage. Sex is divorced from love, love separate from commitment, marriage from having children, having children from responsibility for their care. And while we don't wanna go to a society that embraces prejudices of the past, such as loveless marriage, authoritarian families, harsh parenthood, yet, While we respect people who choose to live differently, we still can't forget that the single best lifestyle choice, the most effective way to nurture future generations and enable children to grow in a matrix of stability and love is for the family of a man, woman and child. And sadly that's becoming de-emphasized in our modern society. So we're now going to transition to some shorts, some comments about this week's Parsha. And this comes from Judaism's Life-Changing Ideas. The topic is God Loves Those Who Argue. What Rabbi Sachs talks about here is it's a critique of the trends on college campuses and in academic circles in the name of safe space. And you'll hear terms such as trigger warnings, microaggressions and the idea that we need to protect the vulnerable through regulation of speech. And Rabbi Sachs finds this very concerning. Certainly in Jewish tradition, we value speech. We consider it very holy and we have strict laws, laws of lush and hara, hateful speech, derogatory speech that we try to be very careful to regulate how we can communicate. But he goes on to say a safe space is not one in which you silence dissenting views. To the contrary, it's one in which you give a respectful hearing to views opposed to your own, knowing that your views too will be listened respectfully. And what is amazing about Judaism and in particularly in this week's Parsha, is that argument and the hearing of contrary views is the essence of religious life. We see examples in this week's Parsha of Moshe arguing with God. He argues with him on the first encounter at the burning bush. Four times he resists God's call to lead the Israelites to freedom until God finally gets angry with him. And at the end of the Parsha, he says, this is chapter 5, Um, verse 22 and 23. Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why did you send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So you see Moshe challenging God, and he's not the first to do it. Abraham, when hearing God's plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, says, quote, shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? This is in Genesis 18, verse 25. Similarly, Jeremiah comments, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? And Job challenges God's justice. He's vindicated in the book that bears his name, but his friends who defend divine justice are said to have spoken incorrectly. So in short, God loves those who argue with him. That would be the lesson we would get from our reading of the prophets and fathers from the Tanakh. And we call that argument, we call it argument for the sake of heaven. It's debate for the sake of truth as opposed to victory. If you look at Midrash, it operates in the principle that there are 70 faces of the Torah and every verse is open to multiple interpretations. The Mishnah is full of discussions of one rabbi saying one thing, another rabbi saying another. The Gemara continues this discussion with conflicting views of the schools of Hillel and Shammai. If you look at Maimonides' famous book, The Mishnah Torah, what he tried to do was get to the bottom line of the law from the Talmud. And he didn't include any of the accompanying arguments, he just got the bottom line. And the hope was that this was gonna be the final word and there was no need to have to study other works. But even this work became the source of endless commentaries and arguments. There's just no way of getting around arguments when it comes to Judaism. Now why is this? Well, firstly, it's because only God can see the totality of truth. Each of us can only see fragments. There's a multiplicity of perspectives. We see reality now one way and at other times a different way. Even within a single genre, the sages noted that, quote, no two prophets prophesy in the same style. So Rabbi Sacks says, Torah is a conversation scored for many voices. So secondly, because justice presupposes the principle that we must hear the other side. This is why God wants Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Job to challenge him. He needs to hear the case both for the prosecution and the defense if justice is going to be served. You can take the words of the nativ, Rabbi Naftali Zvi Yehuda of Berlin, who lived in the mid, mid and late 1800s. He was the, the dean of the Velozhin Yeshiva. And he argues that the true sin of the builders of the Tower of Babel was their prohibition disagreement. The fact that they couldn't tolerate dissent led to their downfall. So what we need is not safe spaces, but rather civility to give a respectful hearing to views we disagree with. And it says in the Talmud in tractate Aravin that the school of Hillel became law. Most of the time, there's, there are a few exceptions, but the school of Hillel over the school of Shammai. And the school of Hillel became law because they were pleasant. It did not take offense. And because they taught the views of their opponents as well as their own. Indeed, they taught the views of their opponents before their own. So it was the fact that the school of Hillel, the descendants of Rabbi Hillel would first reference their opponents' opinions in a respectful manner before elucidating their own perspective. That was the reason why we today often take their teachings as decisive. And where do we learn this from? From God himself who chose, as his prophets, people who were prepared to argue with heaven for the sake of heaven, in the name of justice and truth. So Rabbi Sachs' life-changing ideas from this week's Parsha is when you learn to listen to views different from your own, realizing that they are not threatening, but enlarging, then you have discovered the life-changing idea of argument for the sake of heaven. So I hope everyone enjoyed sharing some ideas from Rabbi Sachs' books. And look forward to continuing our conversation next week. Hope everyone has a great week.